Welcome back to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hi, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the politics of housing development. Our guest is Catherine Levine-Einstein. Catherine is an associate professor of political science at Boston University and a faculty fellow at the Initiative on Cities. She is one of the authors of the book, Neighborhood Defenders, Participatory Politics and America's Housing Crisis. The book is co-authored with David M. Blick and Maxwell Palmer. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. Joining us to discuss the politics of housing development is Michael Hankinson. Michael is an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. Michael is also an author of a recent paper called The Supply Equity Trade-Off, The Effect of Spatial Representation on the Local Housing Supply. That paper is co-authored with Asya Magazinic. In their paper, they examine how the spatial structure of political representation affects housing development. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. We're excited to have you here as well. Katie, let's start with you and your book. Neighborhood Defenders begins with a short summary of the crisis and rising housing costs. To take one familiar example, according to the National Association of Realtors in 2019, the median sales price in an existing single family home was $1.3 million in the San Jose metropolitan area. We're familiar with examples from across the country. Home prices and rents are high in many other areas as well. Many people, including many economists, have pointed to the role of land use regulations in restricting housing supply and raising housing prices. In your book, you and your co-authors highlight a distinct and important channel beyond formal land use regulations. Can you talk about this central claim in your book? So as political scientists, we are really interested in understanding how politics shape these processes and how it might affect the production of new housing. And so when we think about the role of land use regulations, I think a lot of the previous research on this really focused on the fact that land use regulations can just outright prevent certain types of housing from being built. And that's really important. But we think one of the potentially equally as important, if not more important features, is that land use regulations create a public participation process around housing. And that this public participation process essentially makes almost any new development that involves more than one unit of housing an unpredictable ad hoc process, and that this unpredictability can add huge costs to the construction of new housing. We also argue that there's a real political consequence to empowering communities to speak up on every proposed housing development. Rather than amplifying the voices of underrepresented constituents, what we argue is that it actually creates political inequalities as well. So it's both raising housing costs and also creating really troubling political inequalities in our communities. Right. The way that our local institutions governing housing development are designed in this country really amplifies kind of the role of the people who choose to participate in that process. And the people that choose to participate in the process oftentimes come from a very privileged background in a way that can exacerbate some of these welfare effects. Can you say, Katie, a bit more about how you chose the title? So very often in political communication, one will choose a label that is maybe intended to advance a particular perspective, a particular slice of a problem. So the label that you've chosen, Neighborhood Defenders, I think is kind of charitable to the groups that are the subject of the book, right? And who are overrepresented. Can you say a little bit about not just how you chose it, but the sort of the thought process and the positioning of the community? Yeah, so a lot of people in this line of work in activist circles and in scholarly circles talk a lot about NIMBYs, people who are not in my backyard perspective, who say we don't want housing anywhere nearby. And I think that that terminology is helpful in a lot of ways. It helps us to understand sort of the response of individuals who are essentially responding to concentrated costs of a particular proposal, whether it be like a new wind farm or a new housing development, like NIMBYism applies to a lot of different areas. So I think it's a really helpful framework in a lot of ways. But one of the places where I think it's a less helpful framework is in understanding the political power of those individuals who are really responding to these concentrated costs and showing up to neighborhood meetings to fight housing development. Because NIMBY sort of applies almost a selfish perspective where I don't like this thing that actually would be collectively beneficial. 
And we'd like to imagine that politicians wouldn't necessarily be super responsive to those sort of kind of more selfish arguments. And I also think that most people don't conceive of themselves as making those kinds of selfish arguments. I think there are very few people who go around saying like, yep, I'm a NIMBY. That's the reason that I fight you know, wind plants. It's the reason I fight new housing. It's the reason I fight fight claims. Like it's because I'm a NIMBY. It didn't comport with what we were reading in the meeting minutes. Instead, when we dug deeply into understanding the dynamics of these meetings, and one of the ways we did this is by reading thousands of pages of meeting minutes, what we found is that people really conceive of themselves as defenders of their community. And so we use this term neighborhood defender, which we think better captures how these individuals conceive of themselves and also why their views are powerful with politicians. I will say it may be in some ways more charitable, but we borrowed this term from scholars of school integration battles. That's actually where a lot of the language of neighborhood defenders initially came from in scholarship, talking about people sort of fighting against Black school children being allowed into their districts. And so to some extent, I think it also maybe ties in a little bit with some of that racial scholarship as well. That was something that struck me, contra Greg's comment. I think that the use of neighborhood defenders really does evoke some of the efforts in the middle 20th century by certain white neighborhoods in northern U.S. cities trying to maintain the color line. So one of the things that is really interesting about your book is this analysis that you do of who participates in planning and zoning meetings. And that's made possible by this Massachusetts open records law. You're able to get this extraordinarily rich data set about who participates in, in meetings. And one thing that struck me is how unrepresentative the people who speak and participate in these meetings are in a way that's not dissimilar to maybe some of the groups that were taking these similar actions in the 1950s and 1960s. Totally. I imagine if we did a deep dive into the neighborhood meetings of 1950s school desec battles, it probably would be a very privileged white homeowning subset of the population. That's sort of who we expect to show up to these kinds of hearings. And again, I think it's about who has the time and the interest to participate and who also feels like their voices will matter. And so I don't see that those dynamics of sort of driving who participates are going to shift dramatically from different kinds of local government functions. I think one thing that may be distinctive about housing politics, and I know Michael has like great survey data on this too, so maybe he can jump in on this as well, is that I think new housing developments, one thing that maybe is distinctive about them relative to, a, say, a proposal on a public school, is that there's a very small subset of the community that's going to get really worked up about a proposed townhouse nearby. And that's sort of part of the problem with structuring our housing process this way, is that when you're proposing like a townhouse, the people who live right nearby are going to get really upset, like the people who are maybe within a block's radius. You know, our data show this are overwhelmingly opposed to the construction of this new unit. But as you get farther and farther away, people kind of don't care as much. It's really about those concentrated costs. And those are the folks who show up to these hearings. I imagine, and I think our recent evidence on some recent school desegregation battles suggests that some of those school meetings can become much bigger and affect a wider swath of the area. And so that there isn't quite that same kind of concentrated cost dynamic motivating a very narrow subset of folks. But yeah, I don't know if, Michael, you have thoughts on that from your survey data. I would say that the analogy to school integration is actually one I hadn't thought about for this conversation. And, and I largely agree with it. But I think Katie's highlighting what makes something like housing so different. And it's that on one hand, you're talking about these large confrontations that will happen over individual parcels. That's very different than saying we're going to desegregate the school in a way that animates this broad swath. The second is that when you're talking about desegregation, usually there's a community mobilized that is kind of pushing for that integration. And you can kind of see who is being affected by it. When it comes to housing, it's, it's just very easy to pivot away from that and say, well, they're talking about this demand that we're going to meet. The, the costs don't have representation because the cost of denying that permit is somewhat intangible, right? We don't know who's going to move in there with some exceptions. So when it comes to this survey data, there are a few things that are similar to an individual housing development, but we can see this with other types of localized costs. I have survey work with Justin Ben, Victus Kestner, and other political scientists looking at the same phenomenon when it comes to access to methadone to treat opioid addiction, another crisis that fits within this concept of something that mobilizes those intensely around it in a way that's disproportionate to the people who would benefit. And those people can't really come together to kind of support that individual proposal. 
think that's a really interesting point about both the parallels between housing development and school of desegregation. You know, I'm sort of thinking about it in terms of differences in spatial scale of these costs and benefits. So one question I have is, how did we get here? What is the origin and why is our system designed in this way? Yeah, so there's really great historical and political science work on this. I'm thinking of Jessica Traunstein's really great book, Segregation by Design, and obviously Rothstein's book, Color of Law, which I think both do a really compelling job using sort of separate types of evidence showing us that land use regulations in the United States were largely born of a desire to separate people by race and class. And that's how we end up with suburbs zoned with single family zoning. They also end up being lily white. And when we do have multifamily housing, that those areas tend to be more racially diverse. Like that is very much sort of by design in these land use regulations. There are multiple pieces going on here, but that's sort of one really important piece that's happening at the local level. Starting roughly in the 19-teens, 1920s, we start to see this like real proliferation of zoning ordinances that continue to, again, take off even more in the post-war period as we see rapid suburbanization and a desire to regulate who has access to those suburbs. So that's sort of one piece. But how do neighbors fit into all of this, right? Like, how do we end up with this neighborhood planning process? That largely starts to take shape in the post-urban renewal period as a consequence of sort of the excesses of urban renewal, that we had this system where communities of color and middle class and lower class communities, they got bulldozed for projects that may have been of sort of questionable, broader social value. And so a lot of communities responded by saying, well, that was terrible, which it was sort of letting developers completely dominate all of these proceedings. Like, what can we do to have a check against those developer excesses? Why don't we give more power to the neighbors? It sounds really good, right? Giving power to the neighbors. This is something we see embedded in a lot of really progressive federal government policies. The Obama administration was very into neighborhood planning and having neighborhood planning be sort of an important condition of a lot of federal funding. We like to talk about neighborhoods. Our progressive cities all talk about how they like have neighborhood councils. They give so much power to the neighborhood. And that all sounds really great, unless what it's actually doing is essentially privileging white homeowners to control their neighborhoods instead of privileging developers, right? On the one hand, we swung from having developers control these decisions, which wasn't great, to now allowing white homeowners to control these decisions, which is also not great and not sort of meeting our societal need for producing more housing, for producing diverse types of housing that best serves the needs of community residents. So that's sort of how we got here. It's that we really love neighborhoods and really love the language of empowering neighborhoods. And it makes it a real third rail to start to propose zoning reforms and changes that might be perceived as disempowering these neighborhoods. I will also say it makes people very resistant to the message that neighborhood meetings aren't working. And, you know, I've talked about this research a lot. You know, we've all presented it in varying forums and everyone basically buys the, you know, anyone who's been to a neighborhood meeting is like, yeah, it's basically right that the people who show up to these hearings are deeply unrepresentative of their broader communities and they're overwhelmingly opposed to the construction of new housing. But I think because we love talking about neighborhoods so much, it becomes really hard for people to be like, oh, we should just get rid of this system. It's instead like, how can we reform it? Can we put the meetings at more convenient times, right? We're very wedded to neighborhood meetings as a form of local democracy in America. I think this is a really good and deep point. You know, just for listeners who may not have had the pleasure of going to a neighborhood meeting, I'll share briefly one experience where I was living in New York at the time. And I would characterize the process not merely as biased or unrepresentative, but closer to corrupt because it was announced in advance that you had to be there by a certain time to sign in in order to make a comment but they actually changed the deadlines. I had arrived several minutes early and they wouldn't let me and several other people who demographically appeared like they were more likely to support reform, they wouldn't let us sign up at all. And then the the comments were really surprising. People were asking whether bike lanes would increase vehicular emissions, for example, and just really making a bunch of evidence-free claims that were really indulged by the members of the community board who had been appointed by the council member, or at least partly by the council member who governs that district. So there's sort of several layers there that is more common than the reverse. My experiences in Iowa City, where I'm based now, have been that the meetings are three, four, five hours long, and the process does not really work any better, despite the huge differences in every sense between Iowa City and Manhattan. But I want to highlight Katie, what I think is there seems to be this debate between the sort of Jane Jacobs model of every neighborhood deserves a Jane Jacobs who can protect them from Robert Moses, 
And I'm being, of course, a little reductionist here. And then the flip side of that, I think as it's posited, is Robert Moses, which is not a view that has a lot of overt adherence today. But I think an alternative would be an administrative process that is better. In other words, Robert Moses, but good. And I don't know how to kind of navigate that. The reason I mentioned neighborhood defenders having a positive connotation, despite its history, is for the reasons that you're mentioning here, where it really sounds like a benign or positive thing to come out in favor of your neighborhood and protect it from change, but that creates a lot of costs. I really appreciate you raising this point about the dynamics not feeling so dissimilar going from New York to Iowa, because that's one of the arguments that we make in this book is that I think a lot of researchers on housing, understandably, are focusing on the places where our housing market has perhaps failed most dramatically to produce affordable housing. So we think a lot about like Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, where it's particularly disastrous. But these dynamics actually persist across the country. And so when we look at communities in Iowa or in Wisconsin, places where the housing market is just not facing the same kinds of pressures. We still see really similar dynamics where privileged neighborhoods will participate at higher rates in opposition to new housing as a way of keeping less privileged people from moving in, as a way of walling off those boundaries, even in lower cost communities. So these dynamics matter in terms of exclusion, even if the median housing value isn't $850,000 or something astronomical, right? These dynamics are still at play. Like you're not immune from this just because the housing is cheap there. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me in doing more public engagement with this research is we hear from people in like rural Montana or Western Massachusetts, right? Like places where, again, you wouldn't necessarily expect the same dynamics temple, places that are not even urban, where these dynamics are still important to understanding what gets produced and what, what diversity of incomes and races have access to those communities. And if I can chime in on the earlier point made by Greg, there's a urbanists, people who study cities or people who study the built environment love to think about this spectrum from a Jane Jacobs to a Robert Moses. And I think this is where people who study politics and political science should be quick to kind of interject and say this idea that Robert Moses but good is a pipe dream, right? (laughs) There's some sort of, well, there's an administrative solution here that is rational. I think everything about politics tells us that that's not how things work. The famous saying is that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So when we try to think about giving more centralized power, there's always a concern that we are going to swing back to the urban renewal, to building infrastructure, but putting all of the concentrated costs disproportionately on the people who have the least amount of voice. So I think the question that people who are thinking about political solutions to this are kind of consumed by is not only the politics of getting something passed, but even if we had that political leverage, What would be that ideal institution that would both overcome this collective action problem and centralize some authority much more than currently exists, but also provide the protections to those least advantaged communities that just de facto in American politics are going to have the least amount of power and least amount of ability to have their concerns taken note of? That's a great point that I just want to unpack that really quickly. So one thing that's come up in several of our interviews, and here I'm thinking in particular of our chat with Leah Brooks about our paper, Infrastructure Costs, is the democratic control of administration. And so the view that I would advocate, but in a a loosely held way, because I don't know exactly how to accomplish it, is that an administrative state that is capable of effective implementation, but is also democratically accountable, is probably the equilibrium that I want, and that probably produces closest to the right balance of results and protections. But I think the method of ensuring that is not clear to me at all. The system that we have now that Catherine, for example, details here, de facto vests veto authority among those who have a concentrated interest. And the benefits would flow diffusely. And so they may favor more housing, for example, but but their preference is not intense. And so they may not vote on that issue. Even if the issue were on the ballot, they may be demotivated or otherwise sort of persuaded not to engage there. Let's say it's one issue on a platform of 10 by a major candidate that may not motivate them. Whereas for the concentrated group that can wage a kind of rearguard effort to stall implementation, I don't know how to solve that puzzle. But I think building out the story of those who have concentrated interests is a really important contribution of this book. 
I was going to say, I just wanted to build off of Michael's great point about thinking about these groups who basically are being really disadvantaged by both systems, right? They're the communities of color and less advantaged communities that got bulldozed during urban renewal. And now they're not having any say over what's getting built in their communities. And so one of the things that we highlighted in our book is that the fact that more advantaged communities participate in housing politics at higher rates, what this does is it concentrates development into less privileged places, right? So we have this concentration of development in communities that are now facing like pretty acute gentrification pressures and are really worried about displacement. And among other things, this makes them really reluctant, completely understandably, to endorse market rate housing oriented solutions, right? So if you sort of tell these communities like, we should be upzoning and we should be allowing like apartments by right everywhere. They sort of say that's basically been happening in our neighborhoods anyway. What can you do to actually protect us? And so Michael brought up this concept of like thinking about protections for those communities. And I think it's really important. And as political scientists, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about these inequalities to think about what have the distributional consequences been of our different housing policy regimes? What has been going on in these neighborhoods cumulatively over the last few decades? And if you have had your interests ignored for the last six decades, it's a little hard to just say, now you're going to be on the same regime as everyone else. Like maybe we should be thinking about ways to protect some of those communities or provide them some community benefits. Maybe it's about giving them more green space. Maybe it's about giving more subsidized housing. Like I know Michael has thought about community benefits in some of his research, but like, I think those are the kinds of conversations we need to be having both cynically to get better coalition building and to get buy-in from some of these communities for some state level, city level solutions. But also because I think normatively it's the right thing to do when we think about how those communities have been disadvantaged by housing politics since we've had land use regulations. If I could just follow that quickly, Katie mentioned this distribution of housing across these different types of communities. And I think it ties in well with what Greg was mentioning, you know, this idea of some sort of centralized or efficient authority. I think one of the challenges when comparing the housing question to something like infrastructure, I don't want to misquote here, but I think Greg mentioned having some sort of like efficient administration with democratic accountability. And the problem here is that the challenge when it comes to the housing pipeline isn't necessarily administrative corruption, right? It, the administrative hurdle is the democratic accountability. It's the fact that these communities have all these veto checks. So it's kind of like this pretzel where it's really hard to say that you can have both intense democratic accountability and efficient implementation. I think something that, that captures this challenge really well about the distribution is that in the paper that Jeffrey mentioned earlier with Asia Magazinic, we're looking at cities in California that due to the California Voting Rights Act have shifted from having at-large elections, which are much more centralized in terms of the political accountability and the power. People who are elected citywide, so you may think they have the scope to look all over the city and decide where it's ideal for things like new housing permitting. And they're shifting from at-large elections to individual district elections, where each neighborhood has a seat on city council. I'm happy to get into more of the details about like why this is the case and the history of racial representation that's driving this. But the main takeaway is that one of the things that we find is that the shift to these district elections, right, where each neighborhood has more power, that leads to a substantial decrease in multifamily housing. No question. That fits with the story that Katie's telling in this book. It just lines up really well. But the thing that we find is that when we actually map where this housing is going in these cities, under those at-large elections where people were elected citywide, that housing was being disproportionately channeled into minority neighborhoods, even accounting for the income, the home value, the home ownership rate in these individual neighborhoods. Once the city shifts to district elections, where they're building much less housing, the housing is now no longer being channeled into those minority neighborhoods. It's evenly distributed across white and minority neighborhoods. So you can see like, that is just one case in one state where that centralization is driving housing to the place with the least amount of representation. And I think that the ability to observe this shift just in the past 10 years that this act has been put into place in California highlights, as we say in the tale, how big this supply versus equity trade-off is. And that's really the ticket of policy reform here. I wonder if the synthesis there, it's synthesis between your point, Michael, and what Katie was saying earlier about seeing reform as a vehicle for reparatory efforts. So, you know, targeting upzonings at upper income, high wealth communities, right? So that when the balloon gets squeezed, the supply actually goes up in areas so that it doesn't displace people from 
low-income areas. This is not an original idea. I've seen it several places in the discourse. I think Katie's discussed it. But I wondered if that might address the issue, Michael, that, that came up in your research, or if it goes beyond questions of zoning and regulation. Can I add to correct a uh, point quickly? I think this conversation highlights, given the structure of concentrated costs and diffuse benefits, how potentially difficult it is to even think about designing institutions to correct for that. I think following on Greg's point, thinking about some of the work in Katie's book about like document, like what are sort of the neighborhood defenders concerned about? Is there a way that we can think of that might help ameliorate their concerns or, you know, in a kind of a Kosian way, like, can we buy them off? I wonder if there's any solutions on that margin. Yeah, the solutions part, it is the hard part, right? Like, I think we've probably done a pretty good job now of identifying the various obstacles to building new housing. And so the question is, how do we do this without ending up with a system where we're building the right amount of housing, but it's all going into disadvantaged communities? And so we're not actually addressing these distributional equity issues. So there's really depressing survey research by these political scientists, Clayton Nall and Will Marvel which basically they do a bunch of different experiments where they try to persuade people to be like, you like housing. And like, there's like no way to do it. Like They try all these different treatments and nothing works. And so that's the depressing side. My optimistic side thinks we may actually be in a really unique moment right now because of national conversations around racial justice. And my colleagues, David Glick, Max Palmer, and I actually fielded a survey recently where we were looking at attitudes towards single family zoning. And we're looking specifically at how sort of national primes and racial primes might shape people's perceptions about it. And we have some really preliminary evidence that at least among racially liberal voters, there might actually be some movement on zoning issues, that those kinds of land use issues may have actually very, very specific subset of people, but increasingly tied with these issues of racial justice. So this isn't going to magically make some less racially welcoming places change their housing. And that, I think, is going to be a much tougher conversation. But I do actually think there's some really interesting movements happening in some communities right now, some racially progressive communities around land use regulation. I know just off the top of my head in my little corner of Massachusetts of several places that are actively considering ordinances to end single family zoning. And this is in sort of privileged pockets of the area. And so I do think those conversations are coming more to the mainstream. And I think race has a lot to do with it and maybe changing ways that Americans are seeing the ways in which public policies have contributed to systemic racism. Yeah, and I completely agree with the opportunity and kind of the change in just the past couple of years. I mean, I hear my students talking about single family zoning and I'm thinking, are they really just trying to get an A here? Like they've read what I've been writing about and now they know what to tell me. But I think that is a change. Ultimately, though, like many of these challenges involving federalism, we should try to leverage the institutions that currently exist. And Katie writes in the book, or I guess Katie, David, and Max write in the book about the pushes in California that have continued to happen since the book came out to people at the state level realizing that this is a massive collective action problem that's hurting the state as a whole. And we can use levers like withholding gas tax money and certain intergovernmental transfers to try to get compliance. Because as racially progressive as some parts of Massachusetts are going to be in the suburbs. That is one part of it, but it's not going to get us all the way there. But again, in terms of using any sort of federalist structure, that has another centralization of power, like I mentioned before. And so in my paper with Asa Magazinic, we talk about this. What would happen if California did try to push a bunch of housing into the pipelines of all these cities, as they've been trying to do, and then trying to increase kind of the teeth behind those pushes? I think the concern is that that as a piecemeal reform does not address the inequality of political power within the municipality. So if you have a city council that is stacked with representation from wealthier, whiter neighborhoods, that pipeline of housing is just going to push it even more into the disadvantaged communities. And so we see this as a potential silver lining on these effects that we're finding when cities shift to district elections. Right now, they're building a lot less housing than they were before. That's because everyone now has a seat at the table and no one's willing to be the dumping ground for that housing. But if you combine that equitable representation with the top-down push, then all of a sudden, you're locking these people in the room saying, figure it out. You all have equal power now. 
And maybe that gets us somewhere, right? The top-down pressure allows us to solve the volume, the supply problem. But that equal representation, which so far has been the neighborhood defender problem and shutting things up, that actually makes sure that there's some sort of bargain set up where you have maybe no one's happy at the end, but everyone's equally, <laughs> equally unhappy or trying to figure out this problem. I think that's a really important observation, Michael, and it highlights some of the design challenges and opportunities because if you look at it strictly at, a, at the municipal level, then my understanding is your research and others shows that district representation as opposed to at-large representation suppresses housing supply. But if there is a state or potentially federal lever that is activated that favors the production of housing, then it may be that local production can be achieved and there's just the possibility of different equilibria, one where you have at-large representation, one where you have district. And the district model combined with the lever from a higher level of government could lead to both more supply and lower prices and so forth, and also ensure that that does not double down on any damage done in the past. I think that sounds really right to me. I was just going to say one place that I would add on to this is making sure that we set the land use so that we don't have these ad hoc micro neighborhood level processes, right? There's sort of the district level representation that Michael's talking about. And then there's also how these land use meetings often proceed, which is the people in the immediate two blocks. And I think sort of regardless of what the political institutional configuration is, that we need to move away from that kind of neighborhood level. Every time you want to build a three unit building, you are going through a lengthy permitting process, right? Like I think that that part, even if you had all the other pieces, we have to move away from that. Katie, can you talk a little bit more about some of the evidence that you collected and analyzed for the book? Yeah, so we were really interested in public meetings, which is like for anyone who's been to a public meeting is maybe not like the obvious thing to spend, you know, years of your life looking at. You know, no one sets up like, yes, I would like to read all of those meeting minutes and spend a lot of time really thinking and cogitating over the viewpoints of those individuals. But these meetings are really important. This is where a lot of critical decisions get made in local politics. And we just haven't studied the dynamics of these forums that much. They decide what housing gets built. They decide where that housing gets built. Focused on housing because housing is so socially important. But there's lots of other areas people could focus on too, like bike lanes, trains, parking spaces, whether or not a commercial establishment gets a permit, whether solar panels get permitted, right? Like we have made so much of what happens in cities, actually a neighborhood level decision and really a decision that's sort of made in these community forums. And so understanding the processes actually may help us understand how a lot of local politics unfold. And so what we did is we read through all these meeting minutes and we wanted to understand both who participated in these meetings and what they said. So we coded the names of individuals, we coded their positions on housing, and we coded why they gave those positions. One unique facet of Massachusetts open meeting law, which is distinct from anywhere else in the country, at least on a systematic level, is that they provide the addresses of the people who participate in these forums. In a lot of other states, those addresses either get redacted or not reported, or they're reported inconsistently for some cities and not for others. And what's really cool about the addresses is it allows us to merge those folks with administrative data sets. So we can merge them and learn about whether or not they own property in the community. And we can merge them with the voter file to learn a lot about their demographic information. So we find that they're older, whiter, way more likely to be homeowners and longtime residents of their communities, and that they're overwhelmingly opposed to new housing. So they're both demographically and attitudinally unrepresentative of a lot of community interests. And that could be really problematic from a democratic perspective. One thing that interested me among your set of results was what the kinds of arguments that people made at these meetings and whether or not they were related to actual codes governing multifamily development. So one of the things when you look at land use regulations, the reason that you end up in one of these public hearings is usually that you either needed a special permit or a variant. And most local governments set out like super specific criteria for what it is that triggers the need for a variance or a special permit. This is especially actually the case for variances. Those are usually for like very narrow and specific reasons. But what we actually analyzed in the data is that those hearings don't always cue super closely to the issues that they were supposedly about. You could have a variance about like a very narrow parking issue, and it becomes like a wide ranging conversation about density in the community and whether we should really be building three family houses in this place. And is that in keeping with the character? 
the reason this is sort of substantively important is that these land use regulations that maybe by design were meant to sort of target really minute and specific areas of housing development, because they trigger this public hearing process and because members of the public sort of know this is their opportunity to offer feedback on a development, they actually create these much wider ranging conversations that may create sort of bigger problems for developers, bigger delays for developers in constructing new housing. I think that's something that often pops up in legal institutions where there's a hiccup or some discretion is afforded, then all of a sudden a lot of considerations can come in or these can be used as pressure points by the decision maker. One analogy from a totally different area is bankruptcy law, where judges have a fair amount of statutory discretion. But in addition, any bankruptcy lawyer will tell you there is a certain Wild West quality to a bankruptcy proceeding. They don't just follow the letter of the law. A lot of precedent that exists in the area doesn't bind, meaning things that have been done in the past don't necessarily dictate what will happen in that proceeding. And a lot of the policy goals that are guiding the decision maker, whether or not those are the ones that are meant to be guiding the decision maker, for example, in the statute, end up playing a role. And I think you've illustrated very effectively in the book how micro communities can capture some of those levers by exerting outside influence where construction of housing can't be done by right. It has to be subject to a variance. There's an element there of pretext where arguments are made that sometimes bear only a loose relationship to the motivation of the defender. There's a chart in your book that that struck me. It's actually a national survey of mayors it's on page 112. And the question posed to mayors around the country is whether, see, there's six or seven categories, whether they are questions that are settled by majority public opinion or those where advocates tend to be small groups with strong views. I think this is a great design, by the way. And so at the high end, you have schools and policing, which eight out of 10 mayors say are issues that are governed by majority public opinion. And then at the very bottom, you have bicycle lanes, which is 12% majority public opinion and 88% think small groups with strong views. And then you have housing development, which is about 40, 60, 40% saying majority and so on. And so I wondered if you could reflect on that, how these issues get coded as in one category or the other, and what, if any, lessons can be drawn from that? It's a really great question, sort of why are some issues ones that sort of have city-level importance, right, and quickly become city-level issues, and why do others have this sort of more concentrated effects? And, you know, it's not immediately obvious, right, that bike lanes, to pick the really extreme example should be a place where you have a very concentrated group sort of capturing it, right? Like when we think about pedestrian and cyclist safety, you know, there's great recent work that shows that this is a community level issue. It's a major environmental issue. It's a major racial equity issue. Like there's reasons that we as a city, right, should care deeply about this. So I think part of it has to do with the power of interest groups, right? When we interviewed the mayors, a lot of them talked about very organized cyclist communities. And so For better or for worse, I think sometimes when there's high, high, high levels of political organization from a small, intense group, it can contribute to a perception among those public elites that this is an issue that affects that small group and doesn't necessarily affect their broader communities. So I think that's one piece is like, what does the political organizing look like? I think Michael has laid this out really well, how housing is this unique area as well, in the sense that new housing developments, when we think about the marginal benefit of two new units of housing, like I love new housing. I support it very much. And when there's zoning ordinances on the table or something, I am there to support it. I have to admit, I do not go to every public hearing in my community about a new townhouse development. And this is true for most people who are really ardently pro-housing, because while I believe it's beneficial for the community, that marginal benefit is like not necessarily worth my outlay of four hours every time one of these is on the table. But in contrast, it is worth it for those neighbors every time, right? Like if you live next door to this and you don't like it because you're going to have to hear construction noise for, you know, six months, that's much more worth it to you. And so I think those housing units have a very different feel to them than something like policing reform or school integration, right? When we move over to those other policy areas like schools or police, where when we think about the average policing or school issue that comes before a local government, 
those so much more often have a very obvious community level valence with clear benefits and costs to members of the community as a whole that make attending a meeting on those issues much more worth the while of folks who are passionate about this. I don't have anything to add directly to that point because I think Katie hit the nail on the head. So I don't want to <laughs> try to paraphrase it put in my own words. But to me, we were just talking about kind of the data that she collected along with her co-authors. And the results in her papers and in the book are very compelling in terms of these inequalities that exist and who comes out and what they say. But I want to think about the data generation process. What are we observing? Because it is non-random, right? We are observing the meeting minutes and the debates that happen because a developer came forward and tried to get something built. And when I talk with my graduate students, I try to say, if you were trying to design a study from an omnipotent position, what would you do? And when I think about trying to understand the inequalities in political power, and I put myself in that position, all of a sudden I say, well, I would randomly distribute building proposals, right? I would go into every neighborhood and see what happened. And that's not what happened because developers that are trying to build housing know that there are some neighborhoods that are off limits. It's not because it's uneconomic to try to build something you know, new and tall in the wealthy bedroom community of, of Arlington or, or somewhere in Massachusetts. It's they know that the cost incurred in that development process make it not worth their time. It'll actually cost them in the long run, right? So what I want to take from that is that the inequality of political power and representation, these biases that Katie and her, and her co-authors uncover, that is the low end of what exists out there. If we were able to see what these proposals would do in every neighborhood, we would discover that political power is even more skewed than what is recovered here. And that's what I think makes the findings that we do observe so compelling and as a starting off point for thinking about just the basic foundation of political inequality when it comes to housing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It really comports with, we talked with both affordable housing and for-profit developers what Michael is saying about these selection procedures is very much in play, that they know the communities that will be hostile to their proposals, and they are absolutely strategic about where they propose. So we are only seeing the set of developments that developers think have a credible chance of success. We're not seeing the ones where they're like, yeah, the proposition is so bad in that community, we're not even going to touch it, um, which is obviously normally troubling. Katie, your focus here is local or even hyper-local. I wonder if you've had occasion to reflect on statewide reforms, the potential for statewide reform, and also the role of federal changes. I really think we can't expect local governments to do this voluntarily on their own. In you know, the dream world, we can expect some of the more racially progressive places to start saying, yes, we're going to change the way we do our zoning. But there's a lot of really high opportunity places that we know don't have that sort of political culture that we would like to see reform their zoning if we're really going to have equitable development spread across a metropolitan area. And so fundamentally, I think most people who study this issue believe that there has to be some role for the state and federal government in encouraging local governments to, or forcing local governments to reform their zoning. And I think Michael laid out some of the funding strings earlier on that could be enormously helpful. So in various Democratic primary candidates actually had slightly different versions of this in their housing plans, but almost all of them had some version of, we're going to cut off HUD funding or Department of Transportation funding if cities and towns don't reform their zoning. I personally favor the Department of Transportation formulation because the communities that need and care about HUD funding are the ones who are all else equal, probably more likely to think about reforming their zoning anyway. So I personally prefer using the department that serves a larger number of privileged communities as a way of really having some teeth attached to this. So I think that's one piece. I think various states have actually started to look at preempting local zoning and different ways to go about doing this. California has obviously had a few goes at this with varying success and thinking about how to sort of preempt local zoning regulations in places where you have high opportunity communities or transit accessible communities. How can we make fourplexes legal in all of those places? And again, one of the challenges that I think state level reforms of that type have really run into is this equity concern that places in Los Angeles who have just been getting clobbered by development pressures said, hey, you're going to upzone us and make it like a field day for developers. 
while Beverly Hills will not be affected in the same way. And so why do we have to absorb all these pressures? And so I think some of the protections that we talked about earlier are really important when we think about state level preemption in particular, right? Like when we move away from local power, we need to be even more careful about protecting vulnerable communities who may feel like their voice is unheard at the state level. But at the end of the day, if we want to get places that are not going to voluntarily reform their zoning on board, we need to use these kinds of state and federal government policy levers. I couldn't agree more. And I think the Beverly Hills example is an excellent one, in my view, because it underscores really the thesis of a book called Cities by Contract, The Politics of Municipal Incorporation by Gary Miller. It's almost a 40-year-old book, but still very timely. The basic point is, as alluded to by the title, is that the boundaries of cities is not decided by a natural force. It's a political question. And cities like Beverly Hills have done an excellent job of walling themselves off from the communities that they work in. Then they'll come home to their, it's what's essentially a gated community, but with a municipal boundary at night. And so I think there's a tension here between, on the one hand, respecting the wishes of neighborhoods and not wanting to do too much centrally, but on the other, wanting to achieve the equity goals that are so important. And then assuming as static that things like municipal lines ought to deserve supreme deference. I think there's really a problem and in tension with our federalist system. And so in the state level reforms that you described, I think are really promising. I think they need to be done carefully. So things like Preempting single-family zoning are great, but there are tons of other tools in the local government toolkit to obstruct housing production, right? Floor area ratios and setbacks, and especially parking, because you basically can't build housing that is affordable if you have to flood it with parking. So I think, to me, underscores the necessity of a federal and or state solution. And I have to admit, I'm somewhat partial to the federal role or a federal role, because what really enables this kind of spatial segregation is freeways. And those are federally funded, $50 billion a year, just in terms of outlays for the roads. Then there are other subsidies. So it seems appropriate to me that we would attach strings to highway funding. We already do that in many other circumstances, right? That's how the federal government got states to raise their drinking age, by attaching a small fraction of highway funding to that requirement. And I think we could do something like a general requirement not to obstruct the development of housing, but sensitive to the concerns that you and Michael have raised about where that production comes. I'll agree that trying to dismantle some of these regulations piecemeal, I don't know, peeling an onion is the right metaphor. At least onions have a core that you'll get to. But there will always be a different tool used to limit development. So I completely agree that the pressure and leveraging funding to get compliance overall is the right way to go. And I think this is one of the approaches happening in California where we're going to give you an amount of units. Like We're not going to tell you what you do with it or where you put it necessarily. You have to figure that out internally. But if you meet that budget that's been assigned to you, then you're in compliance. And that gets around this idea of trying to strip away individual requirements. I think the challenge when you mentioned federal government is I completely agree with the connection to freeways. But thinking about this question of housing and local policy maps on to a federal platform is incredibly foreign. I think the closest that we've seen to it was even when there was a hint, when someone mentioned single family zoning, in the Twitter, Donald Trump jumped on that and said, they're coming for your suburbs, they're going to go with single family zoning. I think he was probably ahead of the rhetoric that was actually happening on the grounds in some of these suburbs, but it just shows how quickly that that can be blared out and I think kind of shut down when it comes to federal politics. Whereas at least within the state economies in places like California, there's an awareness that is hurting the overall functioning and revenue, affordability, the economic growth of the state, and therefore people may have more political courage to do something. How partisan platforms at the federal level embrace this, I think there is the racial justice component that could get it on the agenda, but this is definitely more than one step removed from something like policing, which is actually getting on the federal agenda, although it's ultimately largely a local issue. Housing seems a stretch, but I'd love to be proven wrong. This has been a great conversation. I think in both of your work, Michael and Katie, you've made convincing arguments that the structure of our political institutions really shapes housing supply. I wonder what you might have thought in terms of what's left on the research frontier. Is there something about how our institutions are structured that you think deserves further research? For sure. <laughs> we both have projects going. So I hope, 
I hope it's still an area of rich research. So some things that I'm really interested in. So one is documenting how race and changing national conversations about race may be reshaping housing. And so we're looking at some mass public data, as well as some data from actual ordinances to see whether that's actually true and whether this is being reshaped. I think the other thing that I'm really interested in is, and I'm working on this with my colleague, Max Palmer, is the underrepresentation of renters in American politics. And so this is obviously super important for housing, but we actually think this is important to a lot of other areas too, extending beyond zoning, thinking about like tax policy. And so that's sort of the other big area that I'm really interested in right now is thinking about the political representation of renters. Yeah. And I think our research agendas are very complementary here where those are projects that I'm excited to see the results of. On my end, you know, I mentioned the current work in California, but I think there are two areas that I'm most interested in. One is how more evidence of how people are responding to development in their immediate context. And we mentioned earlier community benefits agreements, which I think deserve an entire episode on their own. So feel free to invite me back. But this idea of when people oppose things, developers often are kind of feeling around the dark to try to come up with a package that makes these individuals happy. But could there be a way for us to assess whether some grand bargain between these wealthier areas that are willing to pay a lot of money to not have development go in their communities and how that money can be channeled back as part of this package that is offered to more amenable communities that maybe they're willing to take on a good deal of community benefits and allow that development to happen. And that's kind of, as you mentioned at the start of the episode, a COSIUM bargaining strategy. That's one. And then I think the other thing that is going understudied is we keep saying that the thorny question is this policy reform. And we both, I believe, got interested in this from the local politics standpoint. But now this has shifted to a state politics question. So how do these policies get bundled together to build a coalition at the state level is something that I have my ideas about, but I'm eager to see some empirical social science roll out on what works and what doesn't when we're talking about state or you know, maybe even federal policy. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Michael Hankinson, and thank you, Catherine Levine-Einstein. The book by Catherine with David Blick and Maxwell Palmer is Neighborhood Defenders. And Michael's paper with Asia Magazinic is The Supply Equity Trade-Off. Now's the time in our show where we do our appendices, which are short recommendations for our listeners. Katie, would you like to go first? So I would love to flag an amazing paper by Justin DeBenedictus Kessner and Maxwell Palmer. It's called Driving Turnout, the Effect of Car Ownership on Electoral Participation. And what they do is they identify the effect of owning a car on your likelihood of voting. And so they do an incredible deep dive into administrative data and are able to show that car ownership dramatically increases your likelihood of turning out to vote. And just one of the pieces of evidence that, you know, I think the whole paper is really amazing. But one of the pieces of evidence that I found really striking is they were able, in this administrative data, to look at apartment buildings. Like they were able to dig down to like an apartment building of essentially the same address. And people living at that same address, if they owned a car, were much more likely to turn out to vote than the folks at that same address who didn't own a car. And so I think this speaks to the, one, our just general transportation culture in the U.S., sort of the importance of car ownership, potentially having access to really important civic spaces. So yeah, I think this is of interest to urbanists. It's interest to people who are passionate about voting reform. I think it's a really important paper. That sounds really interesting, Catherine. Thanks for sharing. I think it also points to just how our cities and how our built environments are structured, right? And how for many people, having a car is basically the only option for getting around. Michael, what's your appendix? I'm really excited about this paper by a political scientist named Daniel Decat. And the paper is focused on South Africa, but it has a message that is very relevant right now. It's election season, and there's been a lot of focus this year on voting by mail, particularly as an institution to make it easier for people to vote. And what Dan DeCat and previously before him, Adam Berinsky, have shown is that these reforms that make it easier to vote and less costly to vote, right? You just drop something in the mail. You don't have to wait in line. They increase turnout, but they do not do so equally across these demographics of race, income, education, and age. And so what is happening is that it's capturing these people who are habitual voters, but for people who are less likely to be engaged in the political process, they're still left behind. So by making it easier to vote, it's actually increasing the political inequality in terms of whose voice is heard. And this 
pairs well with Katie's book. In fact, she, she cites these papers in the book, right? When we think about these reforms that increase the ability for people to have a say in politics, we need to look at how they get taken up. And at the local level, we're seeing in housing that creates all sorts of equity concerns. And what Dan DeCat's paper looks at in South Africa is that this massive increase in polling stations has the same effect. More people are voting, but they are people that are disproportionately from this top and that's already being overrepresented in the electorate. So when it comes to the United States, these things are not a panacea. They need other reforms to, to get people mobilized and interested in politics. Thanks, Michael. It wouldn't be the first time an innovation in accessibility had disparate impacts. Greg, what's your appendix for this week? So keeping with that theme, I think I want to flag a court decision from this week called ACBNY, which is the American Council of the Blind of New York versus City of New York. And it picks up on some of these topics we've talked about, including how to address the concentrated versus dispersed interests problem and tensions between accessibility and other goals, or on the other hand, how accessibility can help advance other goals. That's how I would position it. So the basic issue in the case was whether the city of New York would have to do something to fix its crosswalks. The allegation was that the pedestrian grid, specifically the crosswalks, are not accessible to people who are vision impaired. And the city was held to be in violation because vision impaired people are, quote, unable to reliably locate crosswalks or time their crossing. And so they risk being hit by cars. I think it's an interesting decision. It's over 50 pages long. We'll post it in the show notes. It comes on the heels of a settlement over a billion and a half dollars by New York City in the summer of 2019 to make sidewalk ramps and other facilities ADA compliant, which itself represents the end, possibly, of a multi-decade litigation which had prior false conclusions to it. And of course, the ADA was enacted in 1990. So even if that does end up being the end of that litigation, it's almost 30 years and there's a clock of an additional 10 years or so on the settlement. So it underscores both the potential for laws like the ADA to help with change, but also the extraordinary amount of time involved. The ACBNY decision, I think, is interesting in its own right. It also underscores, I think, some of the possible angles for future litigation. So it focuses on crosswalks being accessible to the vision impaired in general. What's not discussed is other obstacles and crosswalks that make them difficult for people with disabilities, especially, such as snow clearance. When I lived in the Boston area, I especially, but, but also in New York, I was struck by how poorly maintained crosswalks were in the winter. In fact, it seemed to be standard practice really everywhere I've lived for the city to plow the snow up to the curb, which for an able-bodied person isn't an inconvenience, but for many people, it really confines them to their homes. And so I've long thought that that was an ADA problem. And there's some language in this decision that I think offers hope in that regard. I think, though, that there are even bigger potential implications because as many crosswalks and miles of crosswalks there are, there are even more miles of sidewalks. And the court is pretty clear that it's talking about the pedestrian grid as a whole, not just crosswalks. And so in New York City, for example, it's standard practice to put, in fact, required to put trash on the sidewalk. And snow and ice are regularly not cleared really everywhere that I've lived. Most places, it's legally the responsibility of the landowner that abuts that property. But I think it's an open question whether that kind of outsourcing can survive scrutiny under statutes like the ADA. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I, the opinion reads to me like something that is hard to reverse. I don't know whether a lot of other jurisdictions will embrace it, but it'll be interesting to watch. Really fascinating, Greg. Thanks. It's hard to imagine, you know, with cities facing like incredible budget pressures these days, how we might shift to a regime that might be, your interpretation is more compliant with existing law, but I'll look forward to, to hearing more about that in the future. Okay, you guys all came with very serious, very important <laughs> appendixes. This week, mine is more whimsical. I wanted to recommend a book from 2014 called The Map Thief by Michael Blanding. The book's about this guy named Forbes Smiley, who was a map dealer turned convicted thief of rare historical maps from places like Yale, the New York Public Library, Boston Public Library, and others. 
So the book has a number of genres that it combines. One is sort of a basic heist narrative, but it also has an extensive discussion about the history of map making. It contains a lot about the economics of fine art. So there's a lot of like interesting elements to the book that I found appealing. The reason I'm highlighting this book this week is because there's a crucial turn in the book that hinges on uh, local land use politics. So Smiley has this plan to redevelop or revitalize the small town in Maine called Sebek. And it's part of his like childhood dream to kind of make this town what it once was, you know, an old manufacturing, an old mill town, right? And so part of this plan involves renovating an abandoned post office into a shopping mall. It turns out to be a huge boondoggle and a huge money pit. And along the way, he gets into this land use fight with a neighboring marina. He's upset about how they are planning to redevelop the marina. And in retaliation, the marina owners get him jammed up in years-long litigation over whether or not his post office property is in compliance with parking codes. And so part of the motivation for him embarking on this life of crime is to sort of be able to finance this boondoggle that he's embroiled in, in this rural main town. Eventually, the fight escalates and Smiley abandons the project and back entirely. And that's the end of that episode. Overall, I like this book, mostly just for its pleasures as kind of like a Columbo style how catch them. But I also appreciated the unexpected uh, appearance of land use regulation as a critical plot point. Thanks for listening to today's show. Our guests today were Catherine Levine-Einstein and Michael Hankinson. For Greg's show, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Pals. Check the show notes for links to the articles we discussed on the show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Densely Speaking. Greg's at Greg underscore Shill. I'm at Jeff R. Lynn. Catherine is at Catherine Einst. Catherine with a K-E-I-N-S-T. And Michael is at MSG Hankinson. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover our show. Finally, the views expressed in today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 